0: This week, researchers see cancer spread between species.
1: Here we're seeing kind of a super metastasis where the tumour cells acquire a really amazing new ability to jump from one individual to another, and then apparently, even occasionally, from one species to another.
2: And LIGO spots more gravitational waves. Astronomers scramble to explain exactly what's causing them.
3: Theory people have come up with all their theories, but now the data's peak.
0: Plus, figuring out the taxonomy of subatomic particles. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 23rd, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Cancers are caused by mutations in cells which lead to abnormal cell growth. Many cancers can spread throughout the body in a process called metastasis. But in some rare cases, cancer cells can spread even further, beyond the body of their host, to different individuals in a sort of supermetastasis. These transmissible cancers are very rare, and only a handful of cases have been documented until now. Nature reporter Ewan Calloway spoke with Stephen Goff from Columbia University in New York, who's been looking into a new type of transmissible cancer identified in clams, mussels and other mollusks. Stephen started with a bit of background on transmissible cancers.
1: We think of transmissible cancers as exceedingly rare. Um, there are only really two examples known in mammals, and they are in Tasmanian devils and in dogs. So uh, very, only very special circumstances, uh, we think, allow for this sort of super metastasis from one individual to another.
4: Is it, is it that the actual cancer cell is spreading from, from one individual to another?
1: That's exactly right. That is, the, the cells themselves are being transmitted from one uh, individual to another. So the hallmark of these transmissible cancers is that the tumor is a clone, and it's uh, a distinct genotype from the genotype of the animals in which it's spreading.
4: Is there reason to think that transmissible cancers might be more common, that they, they, they might occur in more than just dogs and, and Tasmanian devils?
1: Well, I don't think there, I don't think there was any guess or understanding that this would be common. And the, the real reason that one would think it should be rare is that any animal with a good functioning immune system would normally, we would think, reject tumors and prevent the spread like this.
4: I understand you were looking at a, a cancer in clams and you found that the tumor cells from different animals were, were identical.
1: Indeed, that's exactly right. So we were you know, very much taken aback with the realization that the tumors from Long Island and Maine and Canada were all identical, basically, in their genotype and distinct from the more polymorphic genotypes of the animals in which they grew.
4: If I'm understanding right, you, you found transmissible cancers in, in other species, not just this one clam.
1: And that's right. And so that's the new result that, again, motivated by this first clam story, we collected samples from uh, now three more species that had this kind of disease. And basically, now we're finding in in each of these cases, the disease is due to a clone.
4: And sometimes these transitional cancers can, can jump species,
1: right? And this is the first time that that's ever been seen, indeed. In a particular clam, we found the tumor spreading in them was not derived from that same species, but rather had jumped from a from a distinct related species that lives in the same beds. And there's another twist to this one, which is that the tumor that is spreading in this way, curiously, is almost never found spreading in the species from which it derived. So uh, it's as if the host that led to the tumor has somehow become resistant, or at least is not uh, serving now anymore as a host for its own tumor.
4: I'm tempted to paraphrase Jurassic Park, you know, nature finds a way.
1: (laughs) Right. You know, in in cancers, we think of them as as literally evolving as they learn to do things like metastasize, where a tumor cell migrates from its original site to a new site in the body. Here we're seeing kind of a super metastasis where the tumor cells acquire a really amazing new ability to, to jump from one individual to another and then apparently, even occasionally, from one species to another.
4: Why do you think these transmissible tumors seem to be so common, or at least relatively common, in these bivalves?
1: I think it, there are two features that that maybe allow for this to be happening in mollusks. One is that they are in an ocean, so there's the physical potential for spread from animal to animal. These animals are um, voracious filter feeders. So a given little clam filters enormous volumes of seawater every day. And there's apparently a perfectly reasonable path for cells that are filtered out in the gills of these animals to uh, find their way into the bloodstream. And uh, the second is that these animals really, we think, don't have a sophisticated immune system uh, that would reject it. They don't have uh, the features of you know, mammalian immune systems that prevent spread from uh, individual to individual.
4: Could humans
1: have transmissible cancers?
4: I mean, you're seeing, you know, more diversity now with this paper. I mean, could it happen in humans?
1: Well, we've we've thought deeply about that. Certainly any immunocompetent person is going to reject a tumor from another individual. So uh, I think the only setting where one could even imagine it being an issue would be someone heavily immunocompromised. Such people do exist, of course, there might be opportunities, um, but I think they must be, must be very, very rare indeed.
0: That was Stephen Goff from Columbia University in the US. For more on his paper and a News and Views article on the subject, head over to nature.com nature.
2: Coming up later in the show, the latest gravitational wave sighting and the life story of the objects that caused it. Plus we've got chameleon spit and plastic bags in the research highlights – only the most glamorous topics for you, dear listeners. But first, everyone knows that atoms are made of three fundamental particles – protons, neutrons and electrons. Right? Right! Wrong! Protons and neutrons are not fundamental particles. They're hadrons. That means they're made of particles called quarks glued together by the strong force.
0: Oh, my goodness, what a humiliating error I have made. Sack me.
2: Don't worry, Kerry, I've signed you up for the Particle Physics 101 course. As you'll learn on this course, protons and neutrons are made of three quarks, but they're not the only types of hadron. Physicists have also seen plenty of hadrons with another quark combination, one quark and one antiquark. But why did these combinations crop up so often in nature, but not four, five, six or seven quarks? Turns out, physicists aren't really too sure. Well, there's a review paper in this week's Nature taking stock of what we do and don't know about the strong force and the possible hadrons. Here's what one of its authors, Matt Shepard, had to say.
5: We think that we understand very well the process by which quarks interact, and in a a fundamental sense, the, the, the strong force. And when I say understand, I mean that I think that we can write down an equation that describes that interaction pretty well. The challenge comes is when you try to take that equation and predict, for example, what types of composite objects emerge from the strong interaction.
2: So even though you can write down the strong forces equation, you're not sure what the results are, what quark combinations you can expect. Is this an unusual problem where you get the theory, but you're not entirely sure what that theory is telling you?
5: Uh, it. it- it is a little bit of an unusual position, uh, but the interesting thing is is that um, is that the equations seem sort of simple, and the output of the equations also seems a little bit simple, right? Protons and neutrons, uh, if you if you would treat them as fundamental particles, seem uh, fairly simple. They have a mass, and they and they, uh, they have some interaction that you can work with and build a nucleus out of. Uh, so, they seem simple and the equation seems simple, but the process of going from the equation to the, to the properties is really uh, quite challenging. And I think this appears in other places uh, too in, in nature where you have, you may at a fundamental level understand how electrical signals propagate in the brain, but how you go from that to something more complex uh, is, is really, really um, tricky. And what seems like relatively simple structures emerge from a simple equation, but in kind of a complex way that uh, we'd like to try to understand.
2: Now, when I was learning about particle physics as an undergraduate, I learned that there are two ways you can combine quarks. You can have three quarks or a quark and an antiquark. I mean, was that just kind of a hand wavy rule because that's all we'd seen so far?
5: Yeah, that, that's based on what what we see. Uh, but there's, there's nothing about the equations of the strong interaction that explicitly forbids something different than three quarks or quark-anti-quark, as far as we know. If you look at at those equations, those equations suggest that you should be able to have four quark or or other types.
2: Why is it so hard to tell what particles to expect? You've got the equations, don't they just tell you what you should see?
5: In order to figure out what particles to expect, you have to be able to calculate, do calculations in this theory that describes a strong interaction. And these types of calculations are incredibly complicated. So people have resorted to uh, alternate mechanisms to try to calculate these types of interactions, uh, one of which is using uh, uh, computer calculations, so computer-based simulations of the strong interaction, to try to determine what types of uh, particles may emerge from that. And what we're seeing recently in the last uh, 10 years is that these calculations have matured to a point where they they can begin to predict what what spectrum of particles that we we should see in nature, and they suggest there should be new types of particles.
2: Well, what have we actually seen so far? We're expecting to see these more exotic hadrons floating about, but have we actually seen any of them?
5: In the last five years, there's evidence that suggests that what we've seen are... uh, are tetraquark candidates. So these are, these would be quark, quark, antiquark, antiquark, and uh, and last year the uh, LHCb collaboration at CERN reported evidence for uh, the existence of a five-quark object. So I think we're at a stage now where we're trying to assemble all that information together and come up with a clear, consistent picture for what that's telling us about the properties of the strong interaction and what types of uh, particles it produces.
2: Now, from the outside, this seems kind of overwhelming. You've just got all these different combinations of quarks and different numbers of quarks, different numbers of anti-quarks, and it's hard to be sure which ones to expect. It, it seems like quite a stressful situation. Does does it feel like that from within the field?
5: Uh, no, I don't think it's stressful within the field. Uh, you can imagine models that explain the existence of the particles that we've recently observed, but then predict as a, as a consequence the existence of other particles. And so it's this type of uh, cross-checking, looking for patterns that we have to do to to make sure we understand and have a complete picture.
2: Are you confident we're going to get to grips with this and work out what is going on with the strong force? Uh,
5: who knows? Yeah, we, we hope so. I mean, uh, is anybody ever confident that you're going to understand anything when you're doing science? I, 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 this is the perpetual quest of science, right? You try to answer one question, you end up uncovering five others. So. I, what I can say definitively is that we're making progress. We're learning more and more every year. Whether that ultimately in the end results in a complete understanding, I, I don't know. I always think our understanding is a little bit incomplete.
2: That was Matt Shepard from Indiana University in the US. For more on the mysteries of the strong force, check out his review paper at nature.com forward slash nature.
0: Coming up in the news, Canada gets serious about earthquake spotting. But now it's time for the research highlights with Cori Locke in Boston.
6: Chameleons perform amazing feats when it comes time to eat. The creatures whip out their long tongues to capture insects up to 30% of its body weight. Researchers have found that the chameleon's mucus is key to the animal's success. The team collected spit from the tongues of chameleons and discovered that it's 400 times more viscous than human saliva. The researchers estimate that the gooey mucus allows the animals to grab insects that are up to 60% of their body mass, which is larger than their natural prey. Find out more about the study in the journal Nature Physics. Plastic is tough to break down and is clogging up our landfills, but chemists have come up with a way to degrade plastic from bottles and bags. They used common catalysts and low cost reagents called light alkanes to convert polyethylene, the most common plastic, into oils and waxes. The process took up to four days at 175 degrees Celsius and broke down up to 86% of the plastic. The resulting oils could one day be used as fuel. The study was in the journal Science Advances.
2: Last week, LIGO spotted its second gravitational wave signal, meaning that we had spotted yet another huge collision somewhere in the universe. Like the first one, this collision was also two black holes meeting a grisly end. But what happened before that, when the black holes were younger? What did they evolve from? Kerry takes a look at this latest finding and the deep history of the forces that caused it.
0: Over a billion years ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was an enormous cosmic collision. Astronomer Chris Belchinski has spent a lot of time thinking about this event. But his description of the action is a little underwhelming.
3: It's a complete silence and it's total blackness. No sound waves and there is no light. Nothing.
0: Belchinsky is describing the merger of two huge black holes. They suck in all the light from their surroundings and in space no one can hear you explode. Hence, no noise and no light. But astronomers could detect one telltale sign of the black hole collision. The ripples it created.
3: Space-time is shaking. The distance is changing between things. That's really amazing thing when you think about this.
0: The ripples had a name that in February of this year was on everyone's lips.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it.
0: And last week, they did it again. The team at the LIGO gravitational wave facilities announced a second signal, also caused by the merger of two monster black holes. Grav wave geek Davide Castelvecchi wrote Nature's story about it. Davide, tell us about this new result.
3: So the newest results, which had been long rumored, is pretty much similar to the pre- previous one, except that it's a little bit less loud.
0: The size is a little bit different from the finding that was announced in February then. The, the black holes aren't so big.
3: Yeah, so these are uh, considered what normally would be considered uh, run-of-the-mill black holes versus the previous ones there were very, very large ones. So people have have described these as the bread and butter of what LIGO will be doing.
0: Now, even though the signals are hard to detect by the time they reach our detectors here, they can still reveal quite a lot about what might have caused them, those black holes circling each other. And this is the origin story of those black holes. Chris Belchinsky, who we heard from earlier, has been examining their early life, when they were still stars, Black holes are formed when stars collapse and the large size of these black holes means that the stars that died to make them were big too, 40 to 100 times bigger than our sun. The stars are interesting because they're obviously bigger than any stars we'd usually see.
3: Those two black holes hitting each other tell me something very important about evolution of those very massive stars that I was not otherwise able to learn from existing electromagnetic
0: observations. Chris Belchinski and his team think that these giant stars are firstly very rare and second, very ancient. His model suggests that the stars contain very small amounts of heavy elements. And because heavy elements turned up relatively late on in the universe's evolution, this means the stars must likely have formed early in the life of the universe. So now let's just go back one more step. We've been talking about stars and black holes in isolation. But here, of course, we have the energy that we that we see transmitted to Earth is when two of these things collide. So how do people think that that sort of um, pairing becomes possible?
3: Yeah, because the universe is big. So even if you have two black holes, one here and one there, they also have to find each other and, and collide. And there are two main mechanisms that people have thought for this to happen. And one is that the black holes started out as two stars that orbited, that were born together, and if you have two two stars that, that form together, then each of them separately become a black hole, and then you have a binary black hole.
0: Should we call this the middle school sweetheart hypothesis? They've always been that. together.
3: Yes, I think we should actually propose that as the official name. And the other one is that maybe two stars existed separately, and, and each of them separately became a black hole, but then they become they start orbiting each other after they have already become black holes.
0: Perhaps the, the late in life divorcee marriage hypothesis.
3: I love that. Yes. I think you should you should be the, the official name giver.
0: For any LIGO subsequent events. Yes. Could anything else be energetic enough to cause these signals?
3: There's um, various things that LIGO is looking for. The possibility of two neutron stars, which are also two very dense objects. There's also the possibility of um, one black hole and one neutron star. So it would be the neutron star would be orbiting the larger object and then basically sinking into it. And then there's other more exotic phenomena that are very speculative, for example, cosmic strings, which uh, could snap and, and produce gravitational waves.
0: All in all, the message I'm getting is it's a very dangerous place out there and there are lots of collisions possibly happening. Just steer clear of them. Okay. Well, meanwhile, Chris Belczynski, like many astronomers, says he'd like to see more puzzling, exotic results. And based on his numerical model, he thinks we could soon be swimming in detections as the LIGO machines start up again in the autumn of this year.
3: My prediction of my standard model is that one detection of one double black hole per day.
0: Other versions of of, of his own model give lower estimates, uh, maybe a few detections only over the six months that LIGO will be on again in the autumn. Um, Davide, does the rest of the field kind of agree with Chris on this? Does that seem like a reasonable amount of detections or are you personally thinking that's way too high or way too low?
3: We're at the stage where you know, theory people have come up with all their theories, but now the data's peak. And we have events, that we can start counting They have started counting them. So it, it doesn't seem too uh, crazy to expect uh, you know many more events in in this coming year.
0: Thank you Davide. So off you go now to count down the days until LIGO switches on again. We also heard from Chris Belczynski at Warsaw University in Poland. His paper is at nature.com slash nature. Time now for our weekly news chat and Heidi
2: Ledford joins us from all the way over in Boston. Hi, Heidi.
7: Hi, thanks so much for having me. So
2: Australia has an election coming up in July and one of the key issues historically in Australian politics has been climate change. What's Australia's history on climate policy like?
7: Um, well, you know, it's it's sort of fascinating. Uh, Australia... In a way, you you could see the country as being sort of torn between two extremes when it comes to climate change. On the one hand, uh, the country is one of the world's largest coal exporters. Um, It also has some of the largest carbon emissions per capita. Uh, So, you know, on that end of things, there's an economic incentive, I guess, to keep things as they are. But Australia is also already experiencing some of the effects of global warming. It's had some extreme weather events, and, of course, it's witnessing the bleaching of some of its really – you know, magnificent coral reefs. So there's also a strong push from the public to, to do something about that.
2: And, and what's policy been like so far?
7: So the, the country is moving towards a system in which, um, you know, there will be a ceiling for carbon emissions placed on, on industry. And, and when uh, emitters go beyond that ceiling, they'll then have to pay uh, a sort of uh, a tax on that. Um, So that that system is going to be coming into place pretty soon. There's a fair amount of debate about, you know, how effective that's really going to be. I think the ceiling was set based on previous uh, sort of peak emissions, uh, you know, between about 2009 to 2014 or so. Since then, I think emissions have already dropped a bit. And so, you know, as a result, some people are wondering whether these ceilings are going to have much of an effect. But, you know, it is is a sign, I guess, that the country is making some sort of step towards reining in its emissions.
2: What's the tone been like in this election campaign? Has there been much debate on the climate change issue?
7: You know, I so one thing I sort of enjoyed or found really fascinating about this article is that, you know, I'm from the United States and um we have our own election <laughs> uh coming up in the near future. And for us, you know, climate change has been barely a whisper, you know, if that in the in the in the election in the campaign cycle. But uh, apparently, in Australia, elections are often marked by you know, big, fierce debates over climate change policies. Again, because you know there is this strong, you know, real-world realization of what's going on as a result of climate change and, and this need to rein it in. Apparently, this time around, though, there hasn't been as much debate, and that could be a sign of two things. One is that. The politicians are focusing more on the economy now um, and sort of the basics of the economy. But there is also a feeling that the two major parties are are beginning to align on the issue of climate change and that no matter which one is elected, the country is likely to start taking some sort of action to rein in its carbon emissions.
2: Are either side proposing to do anything to tackle the coal bleaching that the Great Barrier Reef is experiencing?
7: So the election is really pitting the Liberal National Coalition government against the opposition, which is the Australian Labour Party. Now, uh, the Labour opposition uh, back in May pledged um, to dedicate, I think it's $377 Australian dollars uh, in new funding to improve the health of the reef. Uh, So, so yeah, the health of the barrier reef is is a huge issue there in Australia. Um, Now... The um, coalition government then announced that uh, they would use up to $1 billion (laughs) Australian dollars from um, a clean energy program that already exists to try to to tackle the health of the reef. Um, So so both parties are seeing this as a major issue. And I think because, you know, obviously it's resonating very deeply with their voters, um, there are, you know, concerns about whether or not these these funds would really make much difference because in the end, it's, you know, the global warming is the problem and you can try to, to have small initiatives to help the reef, but the bigger problem is still going to be there.
2: Moving on now, half the way across the world to Canada, Canada has just built an earthquake early warning system. Now, first up, just very basically, how do you warn early of an earthquake?
7: I know. It's it's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, the most it seems like that you can get from these systems is a few seconds to, you know, maybe a few minutes of warning. But what they do is they put up uh, a network of seafloor sensors that try to monitor, you know, in particular key areas, high-risk areas, for example. Um, and what they do is they, they try to detect... The first waves generated by a tremor, so these are called the non-destructive primary waves. Um, they're going to travel a little faster than the destructive secondary waves that come along afterwards. So, if you can detect, you know, those first primary waves, you may get a few seconds, you know, maybe a few minutes of warning, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it can be enough to, you know, shut down a high-speed train or a nuclear reactor. Um, you know, if you have a way to turn it into a public warning system, then you know you have you can tell people to brace themselves and move into the appropriate part of their building, etc. So it it is a really valuable tool to have.
2: When I generally think of preparation for earthquakes and planning for earthquakes, I think of Japan. Have they already developed systems like this?
7: Japan, in fact, has been a pioneer, really, with these sorts of systems. And and it's had a system to warn and to stop its high-speed bullet train since the 1960s. Um, Public warnings came along quite a bit after that. That was in 2007. They started to initiate those warnings.
2: I didn't actually know that Canada was in such imminent threat from an earthquake.
7: Yeah, you know, it's that um, there's a key subduction zone off of the coast of British Columbia. This new network of, of sensors is hoping to put the sensors very close to that subduction zone to try to maximize the amount of warning that it can generate.
2: I would have thought that this fault could also affect the US. Are the US doing anything to monitor this area?
7: There is a sister program in the U.S., um, and there are sensors, for example, off the coast of Oregon, very, quite close to this region in, in British Columbia, um, and those sensors are certainly good. They, they do have some limitations, so in that sense, the, the new system that will be going into place in Canada could be quite a bit better. It's, it's intended to really transmit instantaneously, and again, it's going to have those sensors quite close to the, to the subduction zone.
2: Thank you, Heidi. More, as always, for free at nature.com forward slash news or follow Nature
0: News on Facebook or Twitter. Keep an eye out for this month's Back Chat featuring Brexit, Trump and a dramatic rescue from the Antarctic. See you the same time next week for The Regular Show. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. This episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research. Check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website nature.com. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices, to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit Scientific Reports at nature.com/srep.